Uh, we were in James 4 uh, last week, and we're going to stick around. We're going to be in a holding pattern on a few verses here at the top of James 4, because it is so important. While we're preparing, as you saw in the announcements, and, you, and we've been talking about it for a few weeks, we're preparing to make a move to two services, which is a, which is a physical separation. Our goal and our heart and our desire is that we would still be unified one to, one to another. That fabric uh, that develops through groups, develops through personal interaction, through getting two steps beyond Sunday, those are the kind of things that, that weave us together. They, they make the fabric of our church family something that's strong. What the enemy would like is to take this physical division and to spur some things in, in us so that we're spiritually divided or we're emotionally divided. The enemy does nothing except bring division, right? So we don't want to give the enemy a foothold. So I felt like it's probably a good idea to talk here about the first little bit of James 4. And it begins like this, James 4. One, we're going to read verses 1 through 10. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You, you desire, but you don't have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Okay, so James is talking about conflict. You might be one of those people who handles conflict incredibly well. Let me just cut to the chase. I don't handle conflict well. Some people just take it all in stride, and it's like, oh, no, this is, we're just having a difference of opinions. This is fine. And I tend to... I don't tend to run away from conflict, but I certainly don't run towards it. I can say that. Uh, because it, I, I tend to get in my head about what's coming up, and I predict what people are probably going to feel, what they're probably going to say, how that's probably going to go. And then I feel like, okay, well, I predicted that. In my imagination, that's the conversation. Okay, now I need to prepare for that imaginary conversation I just created. Which is, it's all... It's a lot of work, y'all. I put a lot of thought and a lot of preparation. If you and I are having conflict, just know I've been thinking about it a lot. That's one service I provide for you. Uh, so there, there are some people who just run away from conflict entirely. You may be one of those people. You may know and be frustrated by one of those people because you just really want to get down to the bottom of it. You want to resolve something. And some people, it makes them so uncomfortable that they're like, I don't want to resolve anything. Bye. And they go and they leave. But, you know, that, that doesn't help the situation either. Some people on the other end of the spectrum are so eager to get in conflict that you end up in arguments 
when the other person thought you were in agreement, right? But it's like a little semantic difference. Like, okay, well, I, I, I hear what you're saying, but you didn't say it exactly this way. And so I just want to really make sure that I'm heard. You know, that there, there are people that are just not afraid of conflict or confrontation at all. And honestly, they scare me just a little bit because, <laughs> oh my gosh, I wasn't prepared for this. I didn't have time to imagine this conversation. <laughs> but... So we all approach conflict and confrontation from different vantage points, but what James is trying to tell us here is that however you view it, however you prepare for it, however you feel about it, conflict is inevitable. It is a part of the human condition. It is a part of living in a world after the fall. It's a part of having a revelation of Jesus and being rooted and grounded in the truth in the middle of a world that maybe doesn't receive it or accept it, just living our lives invites conflict. And so James is pointing us out to that uncomfortable fact, and also he's uh, reiterating something we mentioned last week, that the external conflicts that we're involved in stem from the internal conflicts that we haven't resolved. Case in point when I was talking about the conversations that I imagine are going to be happening, and I prepare for them. And then I'm really ready to confront. I'm really ready to fight, but maybe I didn't even need to. I get into that situation, and maybe what that person is feeling or thinking isn't any way remotely related to what I assumed. And so I end up creating an external conflict because I was so conflicted about what was going to be happening uh, inside. So we're going to go back to James 4.1. The key verse in this section, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? The fights and quarrels among us come from the desires that battle within us. James says that the cause of arguments is our conflicting desires. And he points out three different conflicting desires that we tend to have. So we're going to go through those. The first is the desire to have the desire to have stuff. We talked about last week about how we're kind of an acquisitive society. We like to acquire things, right? Sometimes we like to acquire physical things, like we we want more stuff. Sometimes what we want to acquire isn't physical, it's more emotional. We want appreciation. We want recognition. We want security and safety. But our desire to have things creates, James says, a conflict within us that then becomes a conflict outside of us. We want to have our way. We're acquisitive, which means that we love to get things. We're also consumers, which means that we love to use things. Sometimes we grow to a place where we value the stuff that people can bring us more than we value the people, right? Uh, there's, a, there's that old adage, like we're, we're supposed to Use things and love people, not love things and use people. But that conflicting desire within us to have more, to gain more, and and oftentimes it's our relationships which bring us a lot of great benefits. Sometimes we get skewed and we feel like, okay, well, this relationship, what's in this for me? What's in this for me? And I got to tell you, that's not the heart of God. God never looked at us 
and said, well, I'm thinking about sending my son, but what's in this for me? I don't bring anything to God that he didn't already have. That's why Jesus dying for me was a sacrifice. Jesus came not because of what he could get from this relationship, but because he saw what we needed and he saw what he could give to this relationship. So our, our desire to have sometimes gets our relationships out of order, but we need to deal with it. We need to, and ask, ask God if he can replace that instead of a desire to have more, a desire to give more, a desire to meet needs, a desire to be a blessing, a desire to exemplify the heart of Jesus. We have to deal with the desire to have or it can, it can infect our hearts and it can stir up bitterness and, uh, and, and, and dissatisfaction. Disappointment infects our hearts and it brings separation. And so we got to deal with this desire to have stuff. Um, there's always going to be more stuff and more things to have, but it's kind of fruitless to go chasing them. 1 Timothy 6, 7 and 9 says, for we brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So this is where we get back to surrendering. We have to surrender to God. Surrender to God and ask him to help us to be content in him. So, and I, I, just, I, I just love the Stephen Wright quote too, this desire to acquire things. Stephen Wright, this comedian said, uh, you can't have everything. I mean, where would you put it? <laughs> uh, so second, this con- these conflicting desires that James talks about is the desire to feel good. James 4.3 in the NIV says, when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Every one of us has a desire to feel good. We don't want to feel bad. Everybody wants to feel good, to be comfortable, to have our needs met, to have our senses satisfied. But when that becomes our goal, then we've missed the point. When that becomes our primary goal, our own comfort, our own feeling good, then we're inviting conflict. Our desire to take care of ourselves will come at the expense of other people. And in verse three, James is specifically talking about asking God for things, but asking with the wrong motive, right? Now, having said this, like God is not opposed to giving us stuff. Go back to the biggest example we have. He gave us Jesus, a free gift. He gives us the free gift of salvation. God is not opposed to giving us stuff. It is not a problem for God to pour out blessings on us. Matthew 7, 11 says, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And even in the book of James, in chapter one, James alluded to this as well. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. God is not unwilling to give things to his people. He's not unwilling to pour out blessings that come from heaven upon you and make your life infinitely better. It's his desire. He wants to do it, but he wants us 
to receive them and ask for them with the right motive. The gifts that God gives are not just so that we can feel good. That's a byproduct of God pouring things out to us. The gifts that he gives are so that we will draw closer to him, recognize that he is the source for our provision, recognize that he's the one who gives all things. Every good thing comes from the Father. So it's, it's for us to draw closer to him, and it's for others who don't know him to recognize what his heart is for his people. God pours out things, pours out stuff, pours out blessing, pours out healings, pours out miracles. God pours out the things that he pours out and gives the gifts that he gives for the purpose of relationship, to draw us closer to him, to reveal his heart to people who don't yet know him. Matthew 6.33 says about as much, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Sometimes we get it twisted because the things are what we see, the things are immediate, and we think if we seek the things, then the kingdom and the righteousness will come as a byproduct. It does not work that way. Getting it reversed. We seek his kingdom. We seek his righteousness. We seek the giver, not the gift, and then the gift will come. And the third desire that's internal is the desire to be recognized in this world the desire to be recognized in this world. We live in a pretty me culture. We want to impress. We want to be seen as important, attractive. We want to be seen as smart. We want to be recognized in this world. But James 4.4 warns us against this. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And what does James mean by friend of the world? Being a friend of the world, friendship of the world means that you gravitate towards the world's values, towards the world's paradigms, towards what's normal for the world. We talk about this a lot, that the kingdom of God operates in opposition to the kingdoms of people. And so as we are becoming friends with the world, what we're saying is, God, we value the world's standards more than we value yours. And it's more important to me how the world sees me than how you see me. That's what, we're, that's what we're, we're telling him. And in a word, James is saying this highlights the absolute baseline sin that all other sins build upon, which is pride. Pride. We want to be recognized. We want to be important. We want to be, uh, we want to be famous, or we want to we be attractive. We want to be seen as worthy by the world. And it's, I mean, it's really, it's funny sometimes that that matters so much to us. Proverbs 13.10 says, pride leads to conflict. And I was thinking about this because pride is just one of these insidious things. You know, you get, you get a hold of your idea and your idea is clearly better than everyone else's idea. I get that. Your idea is the best idea, but then the person who's opposing you feels that same way too. Their idea is the best idea. Their way of doing it is the best way of doing it. Clearly, we can't have two things that are best, so someone's gotta win, and so people double down on being right and winning, and what pride does, pride causes arguments 
but then refuses to let them be resolved. It's like leveling legs on a table, right? Eventually, you're, le you're left with no more legs. Um, or at least when I level a table. Some people are good <laughs> at leveling table legs. But for me, if it can't be fixed with like wadded up paper underneath one of the legs, then I don't, I don't even know what to do. But, but pride will get us standing so firm on being right that it will cause an argument. And then that same pride will refuse to let that argument be resolved. And if we're not willing to resolve an argument, there really is no way forward. And the enemy wins because we remain divided. And that's why James explains in verse 6 that the key to overcoming all of this, short-circuiting pride, short-circuiting all of these things that are conflicting desires, is humility. 4.6, he gives us more grace. That is why... The scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. But humility is one of those qualities that you can't exemplify on your own. That's, that's the problem with humility, is that you need other people to help bring it out in you. You, you know how much humility you have based on the relationships that you have. And that's, and that's, the, that's the thing about conflict. It's an inevitable part of life, but when I choose to look at it as, okay, well, this is not an argument. This is an opportunity. This is an opportunity for me to have my heart tested and to see how much of his spirit, how much of his humility is actually working in me right now. I've asked him to help me to be humble. Let's see. This conversation, this conflict is putting this to the test. Right? It's kind of a bummer that we, can't, that we have to have it tested in us because that's uncomfortable, but that's how we know. That's how we know. You can't be humble all by yourself. Uh, but James reminds us that we need to put our humility into action. And if we do that, God will act accordingly. Verse 10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. I want to read this little passage from Ephesians really quickly because Paul wrote this to the church in Ephesus. What, uh, these, these qualities of, of humility and, and gentleness and meekness and, and faithfulness, these are all qualities that, that comprise the kingdom of God. This is what the kingdom of God is. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So Paul wrote this to the Ephesians in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We are at peace when we are in the Spirit. We are in unity when we are in the Spirit together. Because that's what the Spirit is. That's what the Holy Spirit does in us. And so Paul's encouraging us uh, with all humility and gentleness, bear with one another in love. Be eager to maintain that spirit of unity in the bond of peace. So the kingdom of God is one of peace. And I think if we don't, if we're not careful, we misunderstand what peace means. James has been talking to us about conflict. And sometimes I think we misinterpret and we think that peace is the absence of conflict. When conflict, is, when conflict goes away, I'll finally be at peace. What a glorious day that will be. But, but peace is something that actually Jesus calls us to go and establish. Establish peace. And establishing peace requires, first of all, it requires action. 
Establishing peace requires us to do something, right? Uh, Ronald Reagan, heard of him? Famous actor? Yeah. Uh, said, peace is not the absence of conflict. It's the ability to handle conflict by peaceful means. So it requires action. It requires us to be presented with a conflict and then to humble ourselves and respond with the heart of Jesus. But it also requires faith. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., heard of him? Preacher? Peace is not simply the absence of conflict. It's the existence of justice for all people. Peace is not the absence of problems. It's the presence of Jesus, who is justice, who is the, the one who en enables us to handle conflict by peaceful means. Jesus actually spoke of exactly this in Matthew 16, He said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you'll have trouble. But take heart because I have overcome the world. So if we can be in him while we're walking in the world, we can be in peace. So how do we walk it out? I have four quick things. It's four quick things. The first thing is to give up. That sounds very counterintuitive. How do we overcome conflict? Just give up. <laughs> Just quit. No, I don't mean quit. I mean give up. I mean surrender. James 4, 7 talks about this, right? So in conflict, surrender. Ask him to reveal, and for me, we need to ask him to reveal the things in our hearts that are probably adding to this conflict right now. Reveal the ways that I'm wrong in the middle of this. Reveal the stuff in my heart that wants to have my own way and is not allowing this to be resolved. Reveal that in me and then help me to surrender. Psalm 139, 23 and 24, David was praying this. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Test me and know all my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. In the middle of conflict, as soon as you know that it's coming up, this should be our prayer. God, we're in the, I'm approaching something here. This looks like it's escalating. It's getting heated. Before we move any further, search me. Test my anxious thoughts. Test my heart. If I'm being offensive, then let me know and lead me in an everlasting way. Colossians 3.15, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. If he is enthroned in your heart, then you have overcome the world. If he is enthroned in your heart, you have overcome the world. So the first thing was give up. The second thing, own up. Own up. And that's the hardest thing for us to do sometimes. Sometimes it's a lot easier to surrender to the Lord than to own up to what we did to another person. It can be super uncomfortable. It's that desire to feel good, right? Desire to be recognized. We don't want anybody to have a bad opinion of us. We don't want to admit sometimes that we're wrong. It's pride. But if you've messed up, own up. And own up fully. Not in the sort of the passive tense way where it's like, I am really sorry that you were offended. Because that's not about you. That's about them. I'm really sorry that when I said that thing about your family that you took that the wrong way. You know, I'm, I'm so sorry that you are so easily offended. That's not owning up. Owning up is I said something to you and it hurt you and I am sorry. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. Or I, 
I should have noticed you there, and I didn't. I overlooked you, and I know that that hurt you. But I want you to know that I see you, and you are important, and you have value, and so please forgive me. Please forgive me is so hard for us, but it's so healing for all of our relationships. When we offend another person who's fearfully and wonderfully made, we need to recognize that we're also offending God who made them. It's, it's not just, we don't need to just own up fully because we want our earthly relationship to be prepared. We want to be spiritually in right standing. We want to be turning our hearts toward God. And the only way to do that is to own up, to admit, and to say, please forgive me. Confession and walking in the light, as James talked about in, uh, in uh, or was Peter? We've gone through so many books. Uh, but talking about, it was Peter, talking about walking in the light. It gives God the opportunity to display his grace. First uh, John 1, 8 through 10 says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth isn't in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. So we've got two steps so far towards working through conflict. The first one was just to give up, surrender to God. The second one is to own up. If you've done something, just get it out there. Just admit, just own up to it. And then third is speak up speak up. If you have been hurt, and there's a proper way to do this. You don't want to like grab the mic from me and call them out in front of everyone. That's kind of rude. But if, I mean, relationships need conversation. They need honest conversation to be able to move forward. And honest conversation sometimes involves admitting things that are difficult. But speak up. If you have been hurt, go to that person humbly and talk to them. And then also listen to them. Don't just blast and walk away. Talk it through. That really hurt me when you said that. I just want you to know. I mean, I, I forgive you, but that, that hurt me. I just wanted to you know, make you aware of that. Um, I don't want for us to treat each other that way. And then listen. Be ready to receive if they want to apologize. They want to talk about it further. Um, listen and, and pray for them. Pray for them. Bless them. If somebody has hurt you, that's probably the best thing to do first is to pray for them and then go speak up. God does miraculous things with softening our hearts. He does so much of the groundwork before we ever get into the conversation. So ask the Holy Spirit to go before you to minister to their deepest needs. Wherever that hurtful thing was coming from, ask them to heal that person from that. Ask them to be blessed. Pre-bless that conversation before you ever get there. So we've got give up, we've got uh, own up, we've got speak up, and then this last one, make up. Make up. Don't harbor stuff. Don't hold on to it. Don't hold a grudge. Don't. And if you're going to forgive, forgive. Don't forgive and hold on to it thinking, I just know they're going to do it again. That's not forgiving. That's not forgiving. That is continuing to hold them to a standard that you want them to have. That is continuing to define for them how they should act. That's not your job. If you forgive someone, you have to let it go. As Jesus did, forgive them, Lord, they don't know what they're doing. 
So be quick to forgive. Remember that we've been given grace upon grace upon grace. It's been given to us freely, and we need to ask God to give us that same level of grace that he has for us so that we can have it for other people. Give us the grace, the ability, and the opportunity to give freely to other people. Ephesians 4 uh, says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. In Colossians 3.13, says, bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. This process, four simple steps. Give up, own up, speak up, make up. These four things are powerful, powerful spiritual tools that we can use to maintain relationships that are healthy. To dig out all the old and junky stuff that doesn't belong there and be real and be honest and weave the fabric of a community together. But we need to be willing to do it. We need to be willing to do it in humility. What we really need, if we're going to walk in this way, is we really need what we were praying at the beginning of service. Holy Spirit, we need you to come. Holy Spirit, we need your presence. (music) 